millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, your second one of the week, you lucky people. This is an episode of is it the shutdown or is it just going to be some level of more of a mess with American politics? Mid-Atlantic is a podcast that dives into the worlds of US and UK news. I'm your host, Royfield Brown, who today is sat, still sat, in Burlington in southern Ontario, just outside of Toronto. Now, in today's episode, we're going to peel back the layers on a situation that is as intriguing as it is concerning for the running of the US government. Before we go on with the show, a quick thank you goes out to Min 8 Love 1, Film Noises, Snitch Scots, and Moran for their recent reviews on Apple Podcasts. Writing a review for the podcast is the best way to go wish and get new listeners into the show. And we are doing record numbers just under just under 9,000 downloads for the last episode. That is utterly fantastic. Now, government shutdowns are not a new phenomenon in the United States, but the frequency with which they've been happening definitely demands our attention. But here is the twist with this one. The current government shutdown is is unlike any that we've seen before. It's not the classic showdown between the executive and the legislative branches. Instead, this is a power struggle within the House of Representatives itself. To help us dive into the current cause of the shutdown and the brinksmanship of it, and using that as a political tactic, we are joining me, my good friend Aaron Fisher, who's a political organiser and consultant in Oakland in California, Z. Cohen Sanchez, a political strategist in Nevada, Logan Phillips, our political pollster in D.C., he's back. Then we have Leah Brown, 
from Broadstairs Consulting, which is funnily enough in Broadstairs in Kent in the UK, Tanya Altrade, a philosopher and non-conformist in London. And of course, bringing up the rear, we have the wonderful, the luminous Denise Hamilton, a diversity speaker, and Ted Talk Badass in Houston. Where is speaker Kevin McCarthy going to go now, trying to balance the demands of hardliners and moderates within his own party? President Joe Biden addressing the United Nations General Assembly this morning and a major focus of the speech, support for Ukraine. Now, this all comes a couple days before Biden hosts the Ukrainian president at the White House. President Biden stepped to the podium around 1030, telling the gathering that U.S. leadership on the world stage has been reestablished under his watch. As president of the United States, I understand the duty my country has to lead in this critical moment to work with countries in every region, linking them in common cause, to join together with partners who share a common vision of the future of the world. During his speech, Biden called for a unified global front on many issues, including climate change, hunger, and even artificial intelligence. Emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence hold both enormous potential and enormous peril. We need to be sure they're used as tools of opportunity not as weapons of of oppression. The president's speech is also being viewed as a message to American voters on his ability to lead the United States for four more years, this ahead of next year's presidential election. While at the UN Tuesday, Biden also called for continued support for Ukraine in its ongoing war with Russia. Aaron, what have been the political maneuverings this week? Make sense of it for us. Bear in mind, we have an international audience and some of us are not that au fait with the inner workings of Congress. So the latest is that it just seems like there aren't very serious negotiations that are going on. There's a lot of talk about the need to avoid a shutdown in the media, but when it comes to what's actually happening in Congress, the word of passing the bills that need to be passed, it seems like not much progress has been made. Carthy's, the Speaker of the the House, has tried to pass a Republicans-only package, and the Democrats aren't going to bail him out on that. So he's stuck between a unified Democratic caucus who doesn't want to see steep cuts to things like preschool or food assistance for women with young children. They're just never going to go along with it. And then on the other side, he has very staunch conservatives who seem to be obsessed with relatively minor matters that are part of the culture wars. You've got Representative Boebert calling for the adjustment of the salary of a single military official down to $1 simply becomes that military official who's trans. That's the level of discourse that we're seeing is that kind of grandstanding. Matt Gates, who really challenged McCarthy's ability to even become speaker, has intensified his battle with McCarthy. And so it seems like there's no real way out and that we're headed for a shutdown. Gotcha. Denise, historically, why are we seeing more and more of these shutdowns? How much of it is real dysfunction of politics and how much of it is just political theater now? I think we've lost our ability to actually negotiate, compromise, and draft legislation. I could say a lot of other words, but that's really where we are. Um, We have a lot of personalities sitting in Congress, not actual legislators. And when your tools are only blunt, you end up being stuck with a, a smaller subset of tools to create some kind of effectiveness. And even that, as we're looking at it, is not terribly effective. These, like Aram couldn't have said it better, these are just not serious people. 
These aren't serious conversations about the things that Americans actually care about. And so it becomes about sound bites and clips that they can use to do fundraising. It's not really about solving the underlying issue. And you're in real trouble when the people who are in charge or participating within the process don't really respect or hold in any kind of reverence that process. So if they, it's like this perverse incentive, the more resistant and rebellion, rebellious and disrespectful of the process you are, the more successful you are to the fringe of the, the party and the more fundraising you can do. So in that environment, you end up being stuck with these blunt, ineffective, and really terrible tools that really actually harm more people and really don't help anyone at all. See, can the Democrats fundamentally just watch and somewhat watch with a sense of glee as the Republican Party tears itself in pieces? I think that they can, right? But I don't think that's going to solve anything. And I think ultimately... Democrats are claiming to be for the working person, right? They need to also do their part. What Denise said, I think, is spot on, right? As I, I talk to around 50 candidates a week, some of them incumbents, some of them that are vying to run for office. And as the years tick on, and I think I've said this on this podcast before, maybe I've just told some of you privately, but really the biggest issue is that people are not running for the right reasons. People are running to be famous. And that is just, and as I said, it gets worse and worse every year. Just the difference between 2021 and 2023 is honestly terrifying. So that's why we have these situations now where, and, and it could be said that it's on both sides, right? It's just that the difference is that the Democrats are not going to shut down the government. If there were more Democrats, obviously we wouldn't be in this situation. Just look at what's happening with McCarthy and Gates. What somebody had brought up earlier, I think Aram had brought up, is that it's not, we're not even having conversations anymore. Like, I just saw today that I think it was like a couple hours ago that when they went into a private meeting, Gates was yelling at McCarthy about whether or not he's paid people on social media to attack him. That's the conversation we're having now, right? So we're not even talking about the fact the government's going to shut down unless in 48 hours. We're talking about whether or not you're getting attacked on social media and McCarthy's paying for that. It's become so outrageous and at the cost of the American people. So Sure. Yeah, the Dems can laugh at it. And it's it is it. But I think it's more so that it, it's sad to see. I think it's sad to see on both sides. Logan, what, what's the polling on this? Who do the American people blame for the current impasse? I would say right now the polling shows they're about evenly blaming them. I think that's going to change once people have context. Right now, Americans aren't following politics with honestly the norm level of intensity we've seen in the last few years because they're exhausted from the process. So this is more about who they like, don't like. But the coverage is going to be, I think, squarely on the GOP is blamed for it because, frankly, the votes are there for Kevin McCarthy the day he wants them to work with Democrats to get it passed. It might be a clean CR. There might be some minor concessions, but he is worried he will lose his speakership if he signs on to a deal where the 218 votes aren't all coming from Republicans or at least 218 plus some Dems. Eventually, he'll probably concede on that because I don't think you're going to get the hardliners in the GOP to negotiate with something that can pass the Senate because that also requires Democrat support. But for now, that's the position he has to take. You guys have touched on this too, but I think there's a big structural problem in the GOP that's at the cause of this. Because you can focus on unique dynamics of this particular year with the exact players or the small majority that GOP has that makes it hard for them to pass it all with their votes. The bigger problem is in the House, and I'm not talking about the Senate, specifically in the House, 
The GOP's coalition is built on one thing that they all agree on, and that's to fight Democrats. They don't have a large coalition of ideas that they're behind. A lot of the individual members do. There are blocks in the party that believe in certain ideas, but collectively, it's a party in transition from economically conservative to economically populist, with the House being a lot to the right of where the actual voters in the party are. As you can see, the economic policies they're supporting in the presidential race versus the stuff they're trying to get passed in this in their bills that would end the shutdown, um, but cut spending a lot for social services. And so that just creates lots of tension. Plus, I want to show the fight. And so you see in the Senate, right? Not like they're not also pushing for things to shrink the size of government or change the way things are happening. They just don't wait to negotiate till the government's about to shut down. The fundamental problem of this house is that they literally use this as the negotiating tool every time they're in power. And every year they're doing less and less work beforehand. So this is their only way to get something big done. And so if they fail to do this, they feel like they failed to do anything in the House, where really, if they just tried to negotiate with Biden, with Senate Democrats, A, they'd put a lot more elections, so they'd have more power. B, they'd be able to make the changes they wanted, at least in areas where there's compromise, and not have it this be this one moment where there's consequences for the American people if they fail, which they usually won't, because they don't have enough of a united party structure around to actually get the deals they dream of. There have been a lot of these government shutdowns, and this appears to be the most serious that we've had recently or or, or is it I, I don't know i'm totally confused and it's something which doesn't happen in the rest of the in the rest of the kind of advanced economies of the world that governments can shut down mr fisher could you just take us through what does that actually mean does that mean that all government services fundamentally are just stopped what does a government shutdown mean for the american people not all government services will shut down um, there will be an awful lot of people who will be furloughed. So there'll be a lot of services that are harder to obtain. There's a lot of payments that won't go out. There's a lot of people who just simply won't have paychecks, right? That includes a very wide variety of programs. We're talking about uh, people help our airports run, right? Travelers are going to face very serious delays. You're going to have uh, issues with food inspection. You're going to have issues with, I was mentioning before, the WIC program, which is a nutrition program for uh, women and children, you're not necessarily going to be able to spend those WIC dollars. And we're talking about extremely vulnerable people uh, who aren't going to be able to do that. The, um, the FEMA disaster fund is running very low. And we do have a number of disasters that are ongoing, probably most notably the behind uh, a fire recovery. Uh, that's going to potentially be slowed down. And there's tranches in terms of the longer the shutdown continues, the worse these problems get. There's certainly funds that they keep in reserve to try to withstand a government shutdown like this. But over time, the impacts are going to be greater and greater. National parks are going to shut down. There's going to be all kinds of problems that come from this. This idea that, oh, it's not that big of a deal really doesn't line up with the reality. And, and furthermore, like anyone who's ever run a business and part of a business, you know that if you have to stop a process all the way, that restarting it has its own set of costs. So for the last couple of weeks already, right, even if we get a deal today, these departments have been focused on how do we handle a shutdown, not how do we do the, the business of the people and make sure the government services are provided. Z, mm. historically, the sitting president seems to come out of shutdowns pretty well. Clinton came out of his pretty well, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't this part of the political calculus or why is it part of the political calculus? But for Republicans, other than, and, and I think 
Logan has really, and, and Denise have really said this really quite well, really quite graphically, that these individual Congress people have their own constituencies, whether it's on social media or their own constituents, who they're playing to here, as opposed to all of the American nation. But looking at the history of this, and generally the party that pushes for the shutdown fears really ba- fares really badly, sorry. Why are people like Matt Gates so pushing for this when it looks like there's no political upside other than more more time on Fox News? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that they rely on the fact that people aren't going to remember the government shutdown, which unfortunately I think is mostly true. I, I can't remember if Denise or Aram had said it, but somebody had said that it's about fundraising, right? And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Matt Gates is not going to fundraise by getting a deal. That is not, it's just not going to happen, right? Like he's going to fundraise because he's sticking it to the man, whoever the man is. I guess it's McCarthy in this case, right? But ultimately that's their goal. And it's sad because we've set up a system where that's the way it's, it almost has to be. They have to continue to fundraise to be able to continue to get elected to office. There's no term limit, so they can just continue to do this. They want to keep their job. They want to keep their position. I I think it's it's a much deeper problem, right? Because the fact of the matter is that Democrats do this too. They just don't do it in a way that is as on the head, I guess you could say, as Republicans do. And they're not going to, I, I would argue that they're not going to put government workers at risk in order to do that. But people like Pelosi and others have used fundraising opportunities, right, at the expense, I think, of of the American people. So, yeah, it's concerning, but I I do think you're right in saying that these presidents do come out of them really unscathed. Definitely Clinton did, and I think one could even argue that Trump did as well. Mm. Denise, this has been mentioned before, but maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. This really just points at a total level of dysfunction at the heart of American government specifically within Congress. Uh, Logan said that the Senate, for all of its inherent problems, there is still some level of negotiation that that goes on there. How can we fix Congress so that repeatedly in every presidential cycle, I know this is an easy question, Denise. It's an easy question. You've you've got this, Denise. I, I know you've got this. So that we don't repeatedly go into these cycles where the US government has to stop. How can we get rid of the brinksmanship? World peace, is that the next question? I think kind of everything in my life goes back to gerrymandering. I think when our elected officials don't have to actually present themselves to a diverse swath of people with concrete ideas and concrete proposals, then we end up sending clowns to Congress. That's just really what happens. Like there is, when you have districts that are drawn in such a way that the the way you win your primary is to be the most extreme because you don't really have to present yourself to everyone. You don't have to be rational. You have to be able to really pull the far extreme part of your party, but not the other people that live in that area, then that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what gets us here. We send a bunch of people to Congress that, quite frankly, there's no report card. They, like Z said, you win by fighting. You don't win by producing. You don't win by 
creating actual policies that help people. You win by being oppositional and defiant and disruptive and, and quite frankly, terrible. And so until we figure that out, I don't know that we're going to get the type of people representing us that are really there to solve problems and to be a little kinder to them in their defense. So we have so much money in politics. There's so much money that they have to spend so much of their time fundraising. That becomes the job, not actual legislation, not actual problem solving, not actual doing. And so for me, it's this whole, this is my world peace answer to your very large question. I think it's gerrymandering plus addressing money in politics. I don't know what to do about social media. The fact that we, our politicians are all shooting for the soundbite that goes around the world. How do we solve for that? There's been so much discussion about the fact that some of these um, people are just blustering and blowing and, and just crazy when they're in front of the camera. As soon as the cameras leave, they calm down and they're rational and they're negotiating. It's just a performance. How do we remove that performance element of this? That I don't have an answer for. But I think addressing gerrymandering and addressing just dark money and how much money is required for politicians to run is a good place to start to tackle this problem. Believe you wanted to jump in the air. And then just before you start, Mr. F, Leah, did you want to jump in on this as well? I would love to. I suppose I have a slightly different view and not taking into account what we're seeing this side of the pond. I think ego is going to persist regardless. Okay. And so, so, so whether the representatives are, are clowns or not, th this is who we've got. And they are going to continue to appoint their own, whether or not they are able or qualified to do the job that they have been appointed to do. I do think that there is another way absent accountability in the short and the medium term. And, and part of that requires this process to force these leaders to the end of themselves. And, you know, this is why mediators exist, right? That they are the only ones who can, behind the scenes, help Wait a minute. each of is them. Is this a subtle their, their, their shout out for Broadstairs no, Consulting? No, because it'd, it'd be quite apt that, if it was. Leah, I mean, fair, and I'd be very happy to do that. And you're right, this is exactly what I do. But only someone without skin in the game can get beneath that performative stuff to move them on to focus on the main thing. They're not going to get there of their own volition. And they clearly need help keeping, um, staying on the straight and narrow. And so I suppose... What the, the problem is, what if their goal is the performance? If that is the goal, then that's hard to get them off of. I, I understand that. I mean, here we have, you know, every uh, a spad sits behind every MP, right? There, there's somebody who is incentivized to keep them on their legislative agenda, right? And so that there's somebody who has to be able to show these ego-driven individuals what is in their actual best interest, not the immediate, you know, like food, this is what I need in this second, but something that is beyond that thing that they are they're questing after, that they are desiring. And yes, there's a part of like assuaging that ego in the process. But I, I do think that there are individuals that surround these ego-driven leaders who are able to remind them of why they're there and what their responsibilities are. And actually, it would be better for you, you know, for this big objective that you have if you just did this thing or that thing. And I think they need to be given more airtime. Yeah, I think we're, we're circling around problem here and talking about lots of elements of it that are really important. Fundamentally, there's a lot of people whose incentives are not to govern. They're not to ensure that the government is functioning properly. And that is the biggest problem. And there's structural problems that have to do with our very old system of government having 
in some ways outgrown its usefulness. We need to make some structural reforms to our system for it to work. Most countries in the world have done that. We have the third longest running government on the planet. It's only the UK and Iceland that have a longer running government than the US. And the choices that were made at the beginning of the country of how our system would work, just they're based on issues that are not issues today. Small colonies versus large colonies negotiating how power is going to be shared. Slave states versus free states negotiating how power is going to be shared. And those systems and how they evolved over time have led us to this point. I think there's new things too, like social media that have created different equities as well. But fundamentally, if you're Matt Gates, you're seen as one of the true ringleaders of the team government shutdown. He is looking potentially to become governor of Florida. He represents an extremely red seat that he's in no danger of losing. The people who he represents have long since given up on government as being a something that can provide them any kind of benefit. In fact, they see it as something that's greatly to their detriment. The governor, the current governor, DeSantis, has lurched hard to the right and his popularity recently has waned, but he's generally been pretty popular in doing so. Matt Gates can be forgiven for looking at the world that he's in and saying, this is the right thing for me to do. Now, I wouldn't forgive him for doing that. I think his politics are absolutely horrific and there's real people who are going to be hurt by what Matt Gates is doing. But from a pure political perspective, it makes all the sense in the world that he's acting in the way that he's acting. Because if there is a shutdown, people are going to give him more money, not less. People are, his profile in Florida is going to go up, not down. And he's not going to, there's no penalty for him. And as a human being, because my opinion, he's not very good at being a human being. He doesn't care that there's going to be women and children that are going to have their nutrition program cut or that a massive amount of housing subsidies are going to go away in a time period where people are still struggling with rising housing costs and wages that haven't kept up with housing inflation. So it makes sense that he's making the choices that he's making because of who he is and the incentives that the system has created. So we've got a choice, um, a couple of choices. Um, one of them that we need to make is to change the structure so that these incentives aren't baked in. And two, we need to find ways to increase the penalties for people who do things that are counter to the common good. It's interesting you said that the UK and Iceland are the two countries who have a government which has been in place longer than the United States. I believe you mean that our constitution, our co this constitution of those two countries that are actually more long in the tooth. And as a student of history, it's fascinating to see that the whole point of the commons in the UK was to raise the money for the king. And as in the UK, the commons has become more powerful and actually become the primary place where legislation is debated and then enacted. That aspect of the way that we've governed ourselves, there's a tangible link to that power in Congress and, and the way that America modeled its uh, structure of government from the UK. So it's Congress that can actually say, no, we are not going to appropriate these funds for various government programs. But we have so, so moved on from that and, and the rest of the world has. You, you cannot have a legislative body that can just hold a gun to the business of government. But holding a gun to someone's head is most definitely what Senate, what Speaker McCarthy has, Logan. 
you're going to have the last word on this. This government shutdown could last for three days, five days. I think the longest was 21 days, though, uh, I, I think in the 90s. Where does he come out of this? What happens when a deal is done and America goes back to being governed? What happens to that Republican coalition? He's already weak now. Can he get any weaker? Yeah, yeah, he can. I think he's going to come out of this as speaker. Look, Kevin McCarthy knows how to play the game, and he is probably first and primarily focused on what's good for Kevin McCarthy. And so he'll come out of the deal the day he can get, maintain the speakership while having a consensus. And there's many versions of that could happen. There's one that maybe he gets all the GOP, almost all the GOP on board and gets the 218 votes. It's going to be hard, but it happened last time in a deal that goes through with Democrats. Second one is you have most Republicans and Democrats, eh, you leave the ones behind. And the last one is he gets permission to five, six, seven, eight Republicans, or maybe a few dozen, the ones who are representing districts. These are the ones I'd watch who that Joe Biden won by 10 points. There's a, there's like seven of them. That's more than enough if all the Democrats vote for it. They need to win a lot of Repub Democratic voters to win re-election. And he says to them, hey, we negotiated this deal behind closed doors. You're ahead to sign it. I'm going to yell at you for doing it and pretend I'm mad at you. And uh, they don't need the speaker to okay it. There's uh, there, I don't know the very detailed specifics of this parliamentary procedure, but if you get over 218 people to sign on to something, you can skip the speaker, get it on the floor and have a vote. I honestly, if I had to pick, I think that's the most likely if it doesn't get done within the next week. The week after the shutdown ends, I think that's how it ends. It'll probably have McCarthy's blessing and speak in private, his combination in public, and we'll see if the uh, hardliners believe him or realize it's fake. I don't know if they will or not, but I think that's how this most likely ends. Now, in terms of the long-term political complications, I think it continues to remind people that they get frustrated by the drama on the GOP side, but it's not going to dominate the picture because it's a long way away. It has a slow erosion over time in their image as the party of no and dysfunction. And the unfortunately... For the moderate Republicans, not all of them in Biden districts are moderate, but some of them are and actually want to get stuff done or at least act like they do. They're the ones who pay the price, right? Cates isn't going to lose his election. There's no way in hell he's going to lose his election. It's people like Mike Lawler who might be calling them out, but people in that district might say, hey, I like you personally, but every time you win, it's going to give the GOP the house and then we have to deal with this again. That's probably the worst case scenario for Republicans is people like him lose. Gotcha. Let's us leave the new world and go to the old. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Breaking news to bring you. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, has been asked about his position of not wanting to diverge from European Union standards and has uh, been led to questions. Does it mean he wants to undo Brexit? Here's what he's had to say in the last few minutes. I have repeatedly said 
that there's no case for going back into the EU, and that includes the single market and the customs union. Equally, uh, we will not be a rule taker. The rules and laws of this country will be made in Parliament according to the national interest. But that does not mean that a Labour government wants to lower standards on food, wants to lower standards on people's rights at work. The Labour Party has been completely consistent on those issues for many, many years. There's no surprise here. And incidentally, this is also government policy. No case for rejoining the EU, no case for the customs union or the single market. Laws made in this country according to the public interest. But that does not mean, that does not mean that a Labour government would lower standards on food or lower the rights that people have at work. That's been consistent Labour Party policy for years. Incidentally, it is also government policy. So let's look into Sir Keir Starmer's Brexit starch. The Labour Party leader's position on the EU has sparked debates and accusations. Is he pushing for a Brexit reversal or is there more to his stance? Does he have a secret agenda of rejoining the EU, as the Conservatives claim? What does Starmer mean by not wanting to diverge from EU regulations? How does he balance this with maintaining standards in areas like food? Which is all a little bit of a mess, isn't it, Tanya? We all know he's a staunch Remainer, but he's trying to win over those red wall seats where there are still some levers there who think that Brexit was the right turn that this country has taken. This is, we all know his real starts, don't we? He's talking out both sides of his mouth. He just doesn't want to come out and say before an election that, of course, we screwed up right royally and we need to regulatory align with the EU, whether it is food, workers' rights, whatever, because that's going to aid business. Tell me I'm wrong, Tonya. I wish you are right, Rajiv. And internally, I struggle and battle with this every day. What will I do if I was in really? these shoes? Is this an existential um, crisis for you, Keir Starmer's stance on, on Brexit? Wow. It is Okay, indeed. you're on the right <laughs> podcast then, friend. It's <laughs> an existential crisis that I face, and I'm sure it's replicated across the entire country with the way that everything is going on these days and how people perceive what's happened with Brexit and the situation we currently find ourselves in. Look, I wish you were right, and I wish that he's actually playing this game that he's focused on getting into power. But I can't trust it. I think he's doing and setting maybe some of the right foundations. I think his power in issues, I could have probably definitely gone all out to say, look, we've made the wrong decision and we've, we need to start recorrecting those flaws. But... He's made the point around, we don't want to reduce standards and we don't want to lessen our standards. And I think that's one of the right foundations to build on. He still needs to win people over and he still needs to win an election. So I am hoping he's pragmatic about the way he's going about it, but it is difficult to trust. Leah, he very clearly has said in the last week, there is no case, stress the word no case, for the United Kingdom to rejoin the EU. Is he right? There is no case. This is the point where I gently remind our listeners of the number of U-turns that happen every day on statements that are made by the leader and the leader of the opposition. Um, there's always a case. I think the question 
isn't the case, but the path. And uh, at the moment, there is no clear path to get to the desired destination. You can guarantee that it has been thought about, it has been plotted, it has been considered, there have been conversations. Um, but I just don't think that it's something that, that Sakir is able to stand behind right now. Also, I think from a legal perspective, um, a lot of people are hiding behind the idea that there actually is no uh, legislative mechanism for us as the UK to be formally um, reintroduced to EU membership. Um, and I think that his statements about food standards et al is really a response to the far right um, reframing of our legislation, i.e. repealing everything that is enshrined. You know what I thought it was? I thought it was a response to that American chlorinated chicken and the fact that's not good for man nor beast. Right. And the fact that our food standards are better than the Americans. And that's what it's response to. No, I, I don't think so, because it would have just been about food standards and, and it wasn't. He, he very clearly set out the I, I mean, to be fair, should have focused more on employment rights, in my humble opinion. But I, I think it's very difficult, not just because of Red Wall, not just because of the uh, coming general election, but really because there just isn't sufficient consensus uh, for him to be able to promise something that he can't deliver and to uh, risk winning an election because of a statement that may never come to fruition. And I have some empathy with that position. But quite frankly, this is his opportunity to set out his stall. And I'm not convinced that he is doing that as well as he could do. And to be honest, he should be I know he's a lawyer, but he should be more of a risk taker. And he should be willing to stand behind what he is actually believing in. And I think that that would do wonders for his profile. Logan, we've seen a drift from that 52-48 Brexit result back in 2016. Now, more Brits actually do believe that the country made a mistake. But do you have those polling figures for us? And can you break them down for us? Yeah, I was stunned. I dug really deep in this. I looked into a ton of polling and focused on some recent ones so I could do a bit of a polling average, weighing them by pollster quality. And overall, dramatic change. If the polling's right, it would be a landslide election when people are asked, if you were to vote today, would you support rejoining the EU or staying out? 50% said they want to join. 33% say they want to stay out, which makes some of the equivocation on this a little surprising to me, although there's a clue in the polls I'll get to in just a sec that maybe suggests why, if this is polling driven. So so the real difference here, right, is 81% of people that voted to remain the first time still want to remain. Only 9% have changed their mind. The rest are undecided. When it comes to people that voted to leave, 20% regret say they would change their vote now. Only 70% say they would continue to vote to stay out. And then the people that didn't vote, and a lot of those are young people that have now come of age, 50% of them say they vote to stay. Only th- only 20% say they would vote to leave. So real change in the dichotomy. Now, I don't know if that's going to matter or not, obviously, unless there's an actual referendum. And perhaps the reason why he's been a little hesitant for this is that while a majority do support holding a referendum in general, they're resistant to doing it right away. Only 26% of folks in the UK say they want to hold it in 2023 to 60 that say don't. 39% say hold it in the next five years to 44%. Now in the next 10 years, then you have a clear majority, 46% saying yes, 36% saying no. So I think is that folks are just exhausted with the debacle of Brexit. They don't want to re-trigger the trauma of going through this whole thing again. If you did it, I'd vote for it, but I'm probably going to make you pay for doing it. I think it's the lesson from these polls. And it suggests that if the UK continues to feel this way in a decade, I would not be at all surprised in fact, I'd be surprised if they don't end up moving in that direction long term. But I just think for right now, people maybe just want to break from it. 
why can't British politicians, either Stripe, Tanya, start talking about the fact that our economy, depending on who you believe, as our expected GDP has gone down by 4%, 7%, 12%, just whatever, it's gone down. No one's saying it's been increased by Brexit. Why can't our politicians see the way the wind is blowing? Logan has told us what the polling numbers are. Anecdotally, we all know that everybody knows this was a massive mistake. But why can't our politicians talk about the historic own goal of Brexit? It's not just our politicians who can't talk about it. There was a massive march for EU last weekend in London and the BBC didn't even cover it. Even our mainstream media can't even cover it. No one can touch it with a bad pole. No one can talk about it. No one has any courage to talk about it. You asked me why there are plethora of reasons people like Johnson and people like Chris Mogg and, and co ran to victory with Brexit and they have compelled a lot of people to feel they were entitled to things called things like sovereignty, things like being the leaders of our own destiny and, and these sort of really hollow words that were really glib but had no substance behind. And so there is an emotional um, connection there for many people. Having read bosses that said, collect, take the money from the EU, take 350 million pounds from the EU that we give every week and put it in the NHS. So that sort of emotional connection that people have. And it's really difficult to be able to turn around now and say, you know what? I was lied to. I was fed a whole lot of gobble. And I was, you might, you feel stupid actually at that point to turn around and say. But I think, but this is where I disagree with you. I agree with you. Everything that you said until then. I think the British public does believe it was lied to. Mm -hmm. And we're not holding those politicians to account. And politicians on either side of the argument have just said, this is too much of an open wound. We cannot talk about this again. For me, it's stunning that Keir Starmer, at least what he's saying right now, and I totally agree with Leah, he will say that circumstances have changed when he becomes prime minister and then we can drift towards the EU. But it is stunning the fact that he, a staunch Remainer, is actually advocating a position which is the most Brexit ultra one that we're not even going to go back into the single market. Though he's slightly playing footsie with it by talking about ah, food alignment, a little bit of workers alignment. He's playing footsie, but fundamentally said, no, we're not even going to rejoin the single market. We are not going to be decision takers. I think for one, one of the reasons why he'd be, he's trying to stay very clear away from the single market and stuff like that is because of freedom of movement um, and because of the migration you know, the caused by freedom of movement. Um, and he knows that's going to really just play into the hands of, for example, the European Research Group, which is a far-right group of really influential politicians within the Tory party. And they've got some of their hot shots high in, in government today. People like Suella Braverman, people like Kevin Badenoch, you can hear them, what they say in terms of public policy these days. So that's why he's going to stay clear away from that. I slightly disagree with you that he's further Brexit than the others. I think he's inching towards the EU. If the European Union was sat on a bench here, there is a man was probably on one far end and Johnson was probably in the middle. And Sunak has inch closer and, and Stam has inching even closer than that. The words he used, shared values, common ground, shared future with the European Union. Like Nia says, it's not that there is not a case for it. It's just that there is not a pass at this moment. Leah, how can we avoid being rule takers 
but still have the same food standards, still have the same kind of employment laws, or at least the same employment standards, if not laws. Surely we are going to be rule takers then. I mean, the transposition of EU law into UK law was always a prerequisite of Brexit. It's just a question of self-serve. So you can take exactly the same provisions. They just don't work in the same way and they're not overseen in the same way. So then you've got to figure out a way to have that kind of legislative accountability in the UK. And we just don't really have the infrastructure for that. And it takes us a long time to, to draft and create and pass and implement laws. And EU law has been a construct in our legislative process um, for decades. So to just extract that is operationally problematic, but it's not impossible. The thing I'm struggling with and have been struggling with for some time is it's not like we didn't know that this was coming. Where is the plan? Um, Mm. And so I suppose to answer your question, it's an issue for Parliament uh, and they need to decide, reach consensus on what the substance should be in those laws and then pass them, and therein you have the problem. Last question, and then we're going to go and and wrap up. This is Labour's weakest spot, potentially, isn't it, Tanya? Conservative ministers have been accusing Starmer of wanting to rerun the Brexit debate. He isn't, but this is where they can potentially whip up the enthusiasm of those Brexit ultras, those 30%-plus people that Logan mentioned in the polls and get them to shout very loudly. Yes, this is one of their weak spots. Like you rightly mentioned, Stammer voted to remain in the European Union and then pushed for a second referendum. And then all of a sudden he's very clear that we're not going to join the single market and we're not going to join the customs union. So it's what is this paradox that we are living in? It's clearly, it is a weak spot for them. I think the foundation he set around standard is really important. And whilst it's a nuanced and sometimes complex point to, to make, it's a really important point. And if people do get that point, then they'll start to see why he's setting that stone out. Jacob Rismilk, when he was business secretary under Boris Johnson, set out to destroy 4,000, perhaps 4,000 EU laws by the 31st of December in so-called sunset clause. These laws contained things like passenger rights, flight compensation, employers' equality, environmental standards. You might have seen our rivers are full of sewage these days. And that has now been suspended because people have realized what a catastrophe it is. Now, it's not completely gone away because they're still planning to act about 800 laws, but it's reduced from 4,000 to 800. So you can imagine what our environmental standards will look like after 4,000 laws being acted. American standards, bad. And indeed, I agree. But the point here as well is that, look, I don't think we can get away from the European Union. For me, I, I, I make the analogy about it being, being like the, the sun and how the planets evolve around, revolve around the sun. That's what the European Union is to us at this moment. It's, it's got such a gravitational pull with being the highest standards and being one of our biggest trading partners and the geographical connection that we have to it. There is this gravitational pull that we have to it and we are just orbiting around it for now until we can settle on its surface again. I was going to say, beyond the chlorinated chicken and the sewage-laced rivers, I do think that there's some similarities between each side of the pond here. I think namely the political dynamic when it comes to MAGA on our side of the Atlantic and the Brexiteers on yours, there's this question of how powerful are they really now? And it's 
I think the biggest political question of the day is, are these the dying embers of a movement gone by or is, are they coming back? Is this the moment where they take power again? And I think that's an absolutely fascinating political dynamic that I'm going to offer no um, answers to. I think that those Brexit ultras were a fevered phase of British politics. However, what we don't have is the opposing side who have the courage of their conviction to be standard bearers for a new way forward. What Starmer is doing is politics by omission, saying nothing. And it makes some level of sense because we've had 13 years of Tory misrule so that the second biggest city in the UK can go bankrupt, so that our living standards can drop, so that I think it's a third of UK kids technically are, are living in poverty. We have our biggest infrastructure project, HS2, which is supposed to help level up the country so the North and the Midlands can economically get the boost that it's supposed to get. And that is now massively in jeopardy. And they have nobody to blame but themselves. And the biggest thing that they campaigned on implicitly and explicitly with Brexit was taking control of our own borders. And we had massive levels of migration last year. It's such a massive catalogue of failure that on the one hand, I do understand why Starmer is just trying to say nothing, just trying to get into power. But we do need some level of leadership. And we need some level of leadership, which also points the finger back very clearly to say we need to leave where we were to go to a new place. On that note, good people, right, Denise Hamilton, you need to tell us very quickly what you've been up to in the last week and where people can catch you on the socials. It looks like you're chilling and relaxing there, Denise. Whoa. <laughs> I have been resting and recovering from a, um, a surgery, but I'm doing great. And just in the preparations for my new book that comes out February 6th, 2024, it's called Indivisible and it's available for pre-order right now. And I'm super excited about it. But if you want to keep up with me, I'm official DHAM, as in Denise Hamilton, official DHAM in all the places, everywhere there's a place. And I will have to say there are too many places right now. You know what? You were, we can see this doesn't really work on a podcast, but I'm watching official DHAM lying on her bed. So Logan, Aram, Z, Leah, Antonia are sharing her bed with her right now. And this woman has delivered a podcast. She's been concise and she's still recovering. So we wish you a great recovery. You chill on your bed, missus. Do not get up for us. Logan Phillips, what's the weather like in D.C. today? The weather in D.C. is nice after a week where it was. It wasn't that bad. It was just fall. It was more summer leaving us. D.C. Autumn. leaves it in a I hurry. Think you mean it was, I think you mean it was autumn, sir. <laughs> I don't know. Did we come up with fall? That's a you know what description. That's pretty funny. You know what? It's not. It's actually an old British description. We used to call it fall up until the early 19th century. Then we got all fancy and invented autumn. Oh, so it's just yeah. like the metric system. You left us holding the bag again. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where can people catch up with you on social media, Logan? At Logan R2WH on Twitter. And this week we just launched the I launched my house forecast and race to the WH.com. So you can see predictions on chance both parties have of winning a majority and if it's your uh, first time following the race we 
really try to make it so it's about storytelling, not just the stats and the forecasts. So you can see the races. They're going to decide the majority on what the main storylines are in each of the top 10. Aaron Fisher, new boy, new boy in this format. How was your first day at school? This was great. Yeah, I had fun. I got to be in bed with six other people and talk politics. It's a dream, to be honest. Thanks for inviting me. Denise does have a big bed. Rather comfortable as well. And where can people catch up with you on social media? I only come out of my hidey holes when people like Royfield invite me to podcasts. So I am using social media exclusively for clients and not for myself. So I'm almost unfindable by design. You're dark. Yeah. Uh, I'm very secretive, but uh, it's better, better to be behind the scenes sometimes. Z, how are you? And are you, wait a minute, you also podcast from your bed as well, don't you? I do. That's what I was going to tell Denise. I'm like, you know what? You're not the only one. <laughs> While I'm pregnant, I'm staying right foot. But yeah, no, we're gearing up for elections coming up in five weeks. If you're not a narcissist and you want to run in 2024, please contact us. It's the right time before the primaries. And you can find us on all social media platforms. It's soul, like the soul of your shoe strategies. Thank you for that. Leah. Brown, what have Broadstairs Consulting been up to in the last seven days? I'm not going to lie, um, I have been fangirling like I've never fangirled before. I met Emma Thompson last week and honestly it's made my year. Um, today, the Longest Day podcast released an episode with the Shadow Foreign Secretary, the Right Honourable David Lammy, so that's been keeping me quite busy and meeting um, the head of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Mark Rowney. So it's been one of those weeks and uh, makes me love my job even more every day. Wow. I tell you what you've been doing in the last couple of minutes, name dropping and with a plum. Well done. Well done. Tanya, I don't know how you're going to follow that. Who have you been hanging out with? Snoop Dogg in the last week? I wish I was having it. Oh, no, you know what? Let's have a more British. Let's have a more British example. (laughs) Maybe Dave, the rapper and the personality who is Dave. Been hanging out with him? Who's Dave? I don't know who that is. (laughs) What's his name? I thought his name was Dave. Wait a minute, who am I thinking about, Leah? He's that guy, and he just he does that mumble rap thing everybody really likes, and he looks really normal. Fred, Stan, Bill. He's got a really short... I don't know. Anyway, I've just showed my age. I can't remember the, the, the guy's oh, name. Storms, isn't it? No, not Stormzy. I thought his name oh, okay. was Dave. I'm going to go Google it. Whilst you tell me what you've been up to in, in, the, in the last week, what philosophical musings you've done, or urban mm. planning... Oh, no, civil engineering. There you go. I'm going to yeah. go Google civil something the hell I meant. It's not you far go. from urban planning, but yes, civil engineering. Look, I haven't done anything for as exciting as Leah in the last week. I have been working uh, my ass off. I have got a few public projects to deliver in the next coming weeks. So I have been working there. And playing football sometimes and watching. That is what I have been up to in the last week. Dave also known as Santin Dave or just Dave, is an English rapper who has gained acclaim for his socially conscious lyricism and wordplay. Dave released his debut extended play Six Pass in 2016. You know what? I'm more hip and down than all of you lot here. That's shocking. You embarrassed me into me thinking that Dave was not a personality. Oh, there's me. I spend most of my time not even in Britain. Anyway, there's been Denise Hamilton, Logan Phillips, Aaron Fisher, Z Cohn Sanchez, Leah Brown, and Tanya Oltrade. They've been your panel on this week's Mid Atlantic. You can write me and tell me how shocked you were 
that Leah and Tanya didn't know who they were. We expect the Americans that they wouldn't know because they're just full of American culture and American exceptionalism. But Dave is a standard bearer of British rap. Leah and Tanya didn't know who he was. For shame on them, for shame. Maybe we need some younger and fresher blood on this podcast. People a bit more down with British popular culture. I don't know. You can write to me and express your shock that they didn't know who Dave was at royfield at gmail.com that's r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com or maybe you can say send in an email saying oh where can we hear more about Dave I'll tell you what we're doing right now we're playing that with a little bit of Dave music it's an education not only for Leah and for Tanya but for the Americans there you go folks here's the best of British here's a bit of Dave I had a wish God knows I wouldn't believe when I was a kid Kill off if you want to leave, there's plenty of fish And I know the bullet that kills you comes with a kiss It's just how it is yeah, oh, oh, oh. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.